Welcome to Zeitgeist with Zach Geist. I'm your host, Zach Geist. This show is made possible by Student Loan Tutor, which you can find at studentloantutor.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please take a moment and give us a review. Welcome to Zeitgeist with Zach Geist. Uh, this is your host, Zach Geist, and I'm here today with Gary Lockman. Uh, Gary Lockman is one of these thinkers or writers that you... Uh, I, I stumbled upon him reading a book about liminal dreaming and uh, so uh, essentially he was spo- mentioned uh, that he'd written a book about the imagination and I had this like really strong pull maybe I should check out this book about the imagination and I did and uh, this is one of these moments where uh, you think you're going to just read a little bit of a book and then next thing you find yourself reading thousands of pages from a writer in this case Gary Lockman uh, about subjects that are so broad that it took us, I think, over an hour to try to figure out what topic we wanted to have uh, surrounding this podcast episode. I think a lot of people struggle to come up with content. They say, oh, you got to come up with content for, you know, that's one of the terms we hear. And uh, I'm actually having a challenge, like figuring out how to reduce the content. And uh, so today I've got Gary Lockman. He's written a ton of books. I think, I don't know, 20 books or so. Uh, I've read so far, uh, I think, four and a half of them. And uh, that's all been in the past two months. And uh, it's definitely like grinded into kind of his work and his mind uh, the past few months. And it's been liberating, kind of like a breath of fresh air. Uh, It took kind of an anemic or emaciated uh, belief system uh, that I, I thought was pretty robust and like really expanded and blew it through the water and also uh, gave me some his- history and story and some roots of the fact that other people were also struggling with this. Uh, so uh, with no further ado, uh, thank you for coming on the show, Gary. I appreciate you taking the time today. Well, thanks for having me on, Zach. I uh think we want to talk about today, uh, I know we had originally spoken down and we narrowed it down to one of your books, uh, which I'm sure it'll unfold in a bunch of different directions. The books I've read of yours so far, have I, it started with uh, The Lost History of the Imagination, and then uh, that took me in another direction, and I bought your book, the newest one that wasn't even out yet, just came out, called The Return of Holy Russia, because I'm Russian, and you're not Russian, so I was like, wow, I wonder why he's writing about Russians, and, and I read that book. Uh, I think it's 500 and something pages or something around there. And um, uh, it kind of gave me the history I was looking uh, for about why the Russian spirituality is so complicated and confusing, at least for me. And uh, and then I uh, listened to the audiobook Caretakers of the Cosmos, uh, which I would probably say has been maybe the most... Uh, hmm. That was kind of like a real awakening. I'm struggling for the term that I want to use, but there was so much in that book. And uh, I feel like maybe that book was a medicine that I needed or a medicine that I feel like a lot of people I know may need. And I've refer- I've given that book to a few people and they thought they were equally moved by it. Uh, so I think it's definitely resonant in my community of listeners, which most of my listeners I know uh, in person. Like I actually... We have like events that have thousands of people come throughout the year, and uh, yeah, this is this is people that I know. So I feel like if maybe it resonates with me, it might it might also resonate with them. And then uh, uh, your most recent one that I finished was uh, the 
Dark Star Rising, uh, Magic in the Age of Trump, uh, which you, some might think, oh, is he a Trump supporter? Is he against Trump? Or, you know, is he on the right? Is he on the left? And then if they read that book, uh, you forget you're even listening to a book about Trump for a while. And then and then you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah there, there's this individual Trump, but it's it's deep in the esoteric roots of what's kind of happening beyond the scenes. And you make these connections that are super fascinating. Uh, so I say all of this uh, to prepare someone that's listening that this conversation may go in a ton of different directions. And I think what I want to narrow uh, and I, uh, Gary's work down to for this podcast is about the imagination, this realm that exists, and maybe how we could invite that, this connection of the imagination back into our, into our consciousness and our world uh, by calling attention to it. And this idea of being a caretaker of the cosmos, uh, because I think it's we see so many things that say leave no trace or human beings are like a plague on the earth or we're kind of like this maybe uh, sub animal like like animals are like in harmony with nature. And you picture like the Matrix scene of like I figured out Agent Smith, I figured out what the you know, what your people are, you know, the computer saying this, the robot is saying, I figured out what you people are. You're a virus, a disease, a cancer, you know, you destroy everything around you. And this idea of thinkers that have thought that they were, they lived their life as a work of art, as a caretaker of not just the earth, but the entire cosmos. So with all that said, uh, uh, Gary, what in the heck is a caretaker of the cosmos? What we're, we're <laughs> Uh, well, uh, that's a good question. I'm still working on that. Uh, no, actually, that's funny. It is a funny question because I, in a way, in the beginning of the book, I say I, I had to write the book in order to explain what that meant. And um, um, well, that, that that phrase itself comes out of the um, Hermetic tradition. Um, that's the sort of the Western Hermetic or Western esoteric tradition, and her, 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 Hermetic specifically because um, it's taken out of the context of collection of writing called the Corpus Hermeticum uh, that uh, were believed originally uh, to have been written by this um, ca character, Hermes Trismegistos, uh, thrice greatest Hermes, who up until about the early 17th century was considered to actually be a real person who, who lived in the before time, you know, the dawn of time. And um, at one point um, during the Renaissance, um, he was considered as important, as prestigious as Jesus or Moses. I mean, he subsequently lost his um, street cred, and um, we've come to understand that he was more of a mythical kind of character. But um, the Hermetic philosophy uh, is a body of ideas and beliefs about um, the cosmos and the divine and um, the human uh, part in this and our, our, our part in, in this vast uh, uh, cosmos out here. And um, we're actually very, very important. Because we're, um, according to the Hermetic tradition, we inhabit two, two worlds or two dimensions of being. And one is the physical world, the world of space and time of nature and uh, the universe and, you know, matter and, and the senses. And there's another, an inner world or a, a, sp a spiritual world that we're also um, part of. And we, we are kind of a, a mediator between these, these two realms. And um, it's given to us uh, a certain task 
to um, take care of the physical world, take care of this uh, world of the senses, uh, be a caretaker in that sense, but also to sort of sing the praises of the higher, the spiritual, the, the mental, um, the, the inner. And um, it's a particularly, uh, how should we say it, uh, affirmative kind of vision of mankind, in which I include um, uh, women as well. It's, 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 it's not male kind, it's, it's mankind. And um, this, this is very, very different than what, um, as you said, uh, when you started talking about the book, uh, is the more dominant kind of tone today. I mean, we're considered, uh, as you said, animals or uh, animal. humans are kind of sick animals. Uh, you know, we're, we've trashed the planet. We're responsible for everything that's wrong. Never should have come to existence and all this sort of thing. And it's the complete opposite of... Uh, the whole notion of being crowned in creation or something like that. And that, that may just sound like, you know, blowing your own horn and saying we're really great, but it's got nothing to do with that. It, it actually, um, it uh, saddles us with uh, a terrible responsibility because not only do we have to tend the actual physical world, world, we're somehow sent here to repair the damage in the cosmos itself in some kind of cosmic metaphysical way. And this is a tradition that you can find also in, in the Kabbalistic uh, tradition, this notion of tikkun, which is uh, repair. There's a kind of repair work that goes on, and you find it in Buddhism and others as well. Um, and that's a different kind of, you know, work. That's a kind of different kind of salvage operation which takes place on, on the inner planes in the inner world. I remember you saying something in this book uh, about the belief that uh, different thinkers have experienced, um, that they felt that they were essentially wearing the entire cosmos like a cloak. That image keeps coming back. I think I read that in, in your book. Uh, maybe you want to speak about what their life might have been like uh, feeling this way, living from this, this place. Yeah, I, I think that's a reference to um, an image that um, the writer and philosopher of language, Owen Barfield, uh, makes in um, one of his books. And uh, Owen Barfield is not that well known. If he is known, um, he's mostly known as the sort of the great friend of C.S. Lewis. He, he, he had a long friendship with, with C.S. Lewis, but he also was a writer and a thinker uh, in his own right. And he was very much um, interested in, in, in the anthroposophy, Rudolf Steiner's uh, kind of teaching. But he had this notion of an evolution of consciousness, that the consciousness that we experience today and take for granted um, in the early 21st century, that in, in most fundamental form posits um, an objective, solid, real outer world of space and time and matter and, and cause and effect and physical reality. And a kind of it's weird, we're not quite sure exactly what it is, kind of little mirror reflection of that world added with some strange, you know, images and fantasies of our own in, inside our heads. And there's a strict difference between the two. I mean, and they're, they're completely um, separate. And uh, Barfield says at an earlier time, um, this wasn't the case. So it, it seems there's good reason to believe this wasn't the case. And he came to this conclusion through a study of the history of language. And fundamentally, he points out that in earlier, in earlier languages, or in the history of language, uh, the language itself is much more metaphoric and figurative. And it, it um, seems to portray and, and, and talk about um, a reality that's much more participatory, um, one that the individual was not quite 
cut off from in the same way that we are. And so where we see the stars and nature as something that's really out there and it's, 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 um, has this perspective kind of character. You know, we have, and if you look at perspective painting, uh, what Barfield's talking about is something like, if you know the difference between a tapestry, let's say, and a perspective painting, with a tapestry, everything is kind of um, uh, flat. It's the same dimension. And um, there's a sense that uh, even as close to us as medieval times, there was a sense, Barfield said, that um, human beings, at least in the languages that he was studying, didn't quite have quite, quite the uh, strict separation that, that we experience and so they could feel closer in touch with and so like something like the stars and again you have to remember like you know people back then they looked up they saw the stars you know we, we don't see them unless I guess where you are maybe or up in the mountains I mean in the city here in London I mean maybe a little bit uh, lately uh, because of lockdown but mostly you don't see them and we're talking about people when they looked up that's what they saw and so it was something that they felt was they were much more in touch with and had much more texture and for us it's it's a it's a separation and this is a way in which you can understand um this notion that i try to bring out in the book lost knowledge of the imagination that imagination um isn't just about make-believe or it isn't just about fantasy or it isn't just about being you know innovative and at the cutting edge of, you know, or, or entertaining. It, it actually has a cognitive um, character to it. We actually can learn things and know things about, about reality uh, through it. And um, Barfield makes the argument that at an earlier time, that this kind of participatory character was part of everyday consciousness, which for us, it's, it's rather unusual and happens in aesthetic moments or poetic or, or mystical kind of moments. I imagine that a lot of uh, the people that listen to my podcast might have had mystical experiences either with the help or without the help of plant medicines or a specific drug or dancing for a long time or fasting for long periods of time. Um, and I think a lot of people have these experiences and they come back and instead of maybe looking for the words to try to explain that experience, they just go, it was just, it was just, it was just beyond words. And, uh, and, you know, and then maybe they kind of demonize. I, I hear a lot of people demonize language in itself, you know, and I, I know that even David Bohm, I don't know how familiar you are with him or, um, you know, he had tried to invent his own language called the Rhea mode, which essentially was a process based language, uh, you know, uh, and, and then people would just literalize the process based language. So it really didn't work because you really need to feel this experience. And when you're telling the story about Owen Barfield, I remember from this book, uh, the lost history of the imagination. <clears throat> Excuse me. That uh, uh, he spoke about how it appeared that people used to write and speak in poetry, and the idea that a lot of people have now uh, is that you know they just worked really hard to speak that way, or that like people gathered together and it's like, hey, we're gonna like take some you know YouTube videos lessons on how to speak in poetic ways or by the course or whatever it is. Uh, but Owen Barfield, and you mentioned this in your book, uh, suggested that that's just how people spoke back then. People spoke in poetry. So maybe for a listener that hasn't really looked up poetry in a while or just remembers being kind of miserable trying to be forced to write it in college and have it graded by a teacher that probably might not have even been a poet or appreciated poetry, uh, what's the difference between poetry and prose? And why do you think people were speaking in poetry back then as opposed to how they speak now? Well, well, it's it's this idea that uh, Barfield saw as the further back you go in the history of language, um, 
the language becomes more figurative, more 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 imaginative, more metaphoric, um, and this is just something that's just a fact of language. And he was writing this back a hundred years ago, actually, in nineteen twenties. And at that time, the dominant kind of school in the study of language, as everything was then, uh, had a Darwinian kind of slant to it. And the idea was that you start with something very, very simple, and then over time it becomes more complex. And so these etymologists who were studying the history of language, they, 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 the furthest back they got, the language was really, really rich and poetic and full of metaphor. The kind of, it, it, it was the kind of language that in their contemporary time, poets would go out of their way to try to write. Poets would try to have this kind of effect, you know, using metaphor. And a very good metaphor, it, it, you know, if you, I mean, yeah, it's horrible what you just said about, you know, sadly, poetry is, is like a mini um, mystical experience, you know, if, if, if it's read, um, if it's real poetry and, and, and it's read, you know, correctly. And it's sad the way it's jammed down people's throats in school, if it still is, you know, and, you know, but um, he's, Barfield's writing about these romantic poets um, from the 19th century, people like Keats and, and Shelley and, and, uh, Wordsworth and Coleridge, and um, they were very good at creating these striking metaphors that the language would become alive. I mean, the, uh, we, we use metaphors all the time, but we don't recognize them. You know, when you say uh, water under the bridge or leave no stone unturned, I mean, these are phrases that just we just say without thinking about them, but they're actually are images. And at one point, that was a fresh image. So metaphors is an image kind of based language. I mean, prose is is straightforward, se- sequential. Yeah, I'm beginning to I'm beginning to grasp what you're saying. Do you see? And that's even one of those lo- lo- logical. Yeah. Well, there you go. Grasp. I mean, gra- I mean, we use that all the time. And even to say understand, it, it it's still it's like there's an image. It's spatial. It, it has a picture. And so what the reigning kind of historians of language were saying, like, well, it must have started out really simple, ug ug, ooh ooh you know, somehow pointing to things and maybe trying to mimic animal sounds or something like that. And then at some point, there was, well, what I call them the prehistoric beatniks or the prehistoric poets. They they got a hold of the simple language and they really made it lots of metaphor and very poetic and all that. And after that, that's when the record started. So we, we don't have, we have no record of the original kind of, er, you know, simple, simple language that later turned into this poetic language. And Barfield says, well, you have no record of it because it never existed. There never was this kind of, uh, you're just kind of forced into looking at it this way because you're, you're looking at it through these Darwinian blinders. It never was like that. It started out poetic because that's the way people saw the world at that time. They weren't, they weren't trying to be poetic. Their language was metaphoric and, and, and figurative because they, di- they didn't see the world we, the way we see the world. We see the world as kind of dead, flat exterior thing that um, is alien from us. As I said before, they saw the world in this more participatory way in which they interacted with the world in, in, in a kind of their inner world and the world's inner world, one to some degree. And that's the effect of good metaphor in, in, in poetry, where suddenly the world becomes alive. Language has this, I mean, sadly, you know, when you're talking about people having mystical experiences, whether on, on drugs or, or whatever, oh, I can't explain it. And it's like, well, maybe they can't, but, you know, someone else could maybe. You know, it's, it's not, it's, it's not because you, you don't necessarily know why you, you, you like something, some piece of music or a painting or something. You can see some fantastic, you know, um, you know and your, your just gush of appreciation is valid. 
but you know a, a poet or a, a composer or a painter will be able to unpack that and and have more distinction and nuances and so on. So that's why we like poets and composers and artists. They're able to express in more complex and and subtle ways something that we just strikes us as you know my God you know in that kind of way. And um, so I'm I, I I don't believe these things are ineffable, but I I, I do believe we, we're limited by the language that we have. We have a language that's based. And the thing about the prose, prose is where we, we, what we speak now. So we started out being more poetic, but over time, consciousness has become less and less metaphoric. We, 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 we no longer see the world in this way. We no longer see the world as this living, breathing, animated other. Uh, uh, we, we no longer see it as a presence or uh, we, we see it as a what rather than a who. And, um, and prose are, 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 you know, sequential logical um, uh, prose is is uh, a product of that and because we, we see the world in this very flat kind of way so prose is somehow we, we've arrived where we are now rather than oh this kind of flat prose must have been something like it in prehistoric time and then it turned into this poetry no we, we've kind of devolved in a way from this poetic language to um, this you know more prosaic one but we we're still are capable of having that kind of participatory consciousness and then Barfield, through the study of, of poetry that he loved, that, that's what he was charting, these moments when the metaphors that Shelley or Blake or somebody used suddenly lit, lit like you said, you grasp it, they, it lit up, and it's a kind of experiential knowledge. And this is, this is a kind of knowledge of the imagination. It's a knowledge, but it's an experience at the same time. You could have the knowledge and not the experience, you could have the experience and not the knowledge, but if you have both at the same time, then it's the, you know, uh, two things come together, and, and it's, it's a more intense, deeper... A more poignant moment than it would be otherwise. So, Gary, what in the hell happened? Uh, how did we move from this rich, beautiful world uh, full of participatory consciousness where people felt alive, seeing the stars, seeing each other, uh, felt embodied living in a living world with, you know, with others also participating as, you know, at either as the creators or part of the creators of of what they were experiencing um uh you know i've heard uh i i think maybe we might go this direction uh there's some uh studies in uh uh neuroscience uh that are coming to to a head ian mcgilchrist who you uh you brought to my attention in your in your work uh talking about there's two hemispheres of the brain and there's been studies by real western medical doctors uh, with neuroimaging that apparently uh, there's two different states of consciousness that, uh, that exist. I mean, there's, multi, there's full spectrums of this, but there's two, uh, either one is led, he called the book Master and, the, and His Emissary because he says that essentially the right brain, I'll let you say it because I think you, you, you've researched this far more than I have, but it seems as though they were living in this different, in a completely, it's almost, there's only brief moments that a lot of us have where we've lived in this way. And maybe those are those mystical experiences that we've had. And we live almost entirely outside of it. And I even think that the craving for plant medicines and for these transcendent experiences, I don't, I don't, I don't uh, try, at least I don't try to judge people for wanting to take plant medicines every single day uh, because it's those people that really, really are craving something mystical and magical. And we, you know, we focus on, oh, it's 11-11, it's 5.55 or whatever time it is. Oh, that's magic, that's synchronicity. And I, I don't think that is true synchronicity, but I think it points to a craving for this 
way of living in the world that some people have had before. No, I, I, I think you're right. I mean, um, I would say in general, um, the kinds of states of consciousness that are, are induced by taking plant medicines or, you know, whatever, entheogens, uh, are a kind of return to an earlier kind of form of consciousness, which is this more participatory. Um, I mean, the thing is, sadly, you know, we, we didn't, it wasn't a fall and we weren't kicked out of the garden. We, we left it voluntarily. Uh, at least in evolutionary terms, because the, the notion is that, well, yes, at an earlier time, uh, there wasn't this distinction quite severe between inner and outer, and we had this more participatory kind of c continuum. Uh, there wasn't this problem with duality and all that, but we didn't have an independent um, self-consciousness. We didn't have sort of independent ego consciousness and, and all of the gains that come with that. And... Um, we, we know mostly uh, the burdens uh, that come with this, and that's why we, we, we want to uh, we have a natural desire to relax into this broader, deeper. And we also have the equipment to do it. I mean, you're talking about the left and right hemispheres. And I mean, if you want to, I mean, the difference between the two hemispheres in, in a general sense is one's a microscope and one's kind of a telescope, uh, or one's a panoramic view and one zero zoom with pinpoint accuracy. And um, at a much earlier time, um, and the, the panoramic view, the holistic kind of global, global but fuzzy, you know, total but vague. And then you have the pinpoint but uh, disconnected, pinpoint accuracy, precision accuracy in the left brain focusing on something like a microscope, um, but you lose connection with everything else. So say the right brain sees the forest, the left brain sees the trees, sees the individual leaves on the tree, sees individual veins in the leaf, sees the individual cells in the veins in the leaf, you know, and keeps focusing, you know, and it gets that kind of accuracy. And its job is to unpack this broader kind of total vision. But it kind of does its job too well. Yeah, then eventually you get down and you go, well, really these leaves, this is what I hear a lot uh, coming up these days, especially in the time of conspiracies, where you get down to the bottom, you go, those are the cells and the leaves, and those are the colors, but the colors are just zeros and ones because we're in a simulation, and someone else is controlling the simulation, and the earth is flat, and then you go down this. But I think that that is the danger of this of this left hemisphere, is it, try, it, it must extract the meaning and arrive at this literal truth of this dead thing and it and it and it thinks it gets to the small enough point i think you talked about you know and then you have quarks and then you have string theory and then you know oh yeah sure yeah 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 i mean that that's the general thing i mean we we um we the right brain is the master it's older uh mcgill chris says that kind of broader uh total vague participatory uh muzzy uh, and it's a felt, implicit kind of meaning to it. It feels good. We, we, we're aware of a kind of um, uh, almost tactile, visceral kind of sense of being and meaning in it. And um, it's implicit. We can't, we can't express it exactly. It's, and I, I think in our more everyday, I mean, we experience this all the time. It's not like, oh, only then I have the right brain. It's there, but it's kind of muzzled. It's kind of, you know, and we'll have a glass of wine or, or something else that'll sort of put the left brain on, on hold for a while, relax, and then you can feel it. And suddenly things are much more interesting. You know, something that you looked at before and it didn't strike you at all. And then you're looking, oh, that's in those cracks in that bowl. Man, that's actually quite interesting. And so it's that, all this kind of reality that is usually edited out because it's not necessary for survival. I mean, the left brain wants to take care of business. It's for survival. It's for mapping out the territory. 
And uh, it basically, its aim is to reduce everything to something it knows already. It likes to turn everything into the familiar where the right brain is open to new all the time. And uh, that's the freshness and the sense of livingness. And that's what we get when we have a glass of wine or whatever, and you, oh, or meditate or whatever you might do. And suddenly that leaf looks absolutely fascinating, you know. Um, so more reality is coming into us then. But one of the problems is that um, the kind of um, will or the motivation to do anything in particular gets dampened as well. So the left brain always wants to take care of business. It's always it's manically wants to do things. Um, but that goes into overdrive. The other one is that, oh, that's fine. I'll just chill and nothing gets done. And my favorite quote is from Aldous Huxley when he says, when he says when he took the, he took the mescaline and, uh, you know, he said this is like the first day of creation and he's completely in rapture over, over you know, the folds and a curtain and things, and rightly so, and, uh, and a chair and all that. He's seen the istikite, the isness of things. But um, he also recognized that the dishes in the sink were too beautiful to wash. And so uh, he said that if everyone took mescaline, there'd be no war, but there wouldn't be any civilization because no one would bother, you know, to create it. And we might, you know, us at the cutting edge of civilization, we might be so cynical to say like, well, yes, maybe we shouldn't have made it. But we all know that, you know, we're much better off with it than without it, even with all the problems it creates. And Huxley knew that well, too. So there's... You know, you, you gain and you lose at the same time. And the idea, if you can get the two hemispheres working together at the same time, which does happen, is um, rather than kind of cancel each other out, they complement each other. And, and um, it, it creates a kind of um, positive tension, a polarity between these opposites who, when they work well, um, it, 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 you know, you have something like a peak experience or a mystical experience or some creative burst or something like that and and you suddenly feel more alive and these things happen to us so it, it's not it's not some some impossible goal what did colin wilson call it he called it the christmas day magical something christmas oh yeah he, well, he says you think well he, uh, yeah i mean he he grew up at a time when christmas you know meant a lot much more I, I think than it does to us these days but you know this wonderful sense of waking up on christmas morning and everything sort of um, enhances the, the initial sense of excitement and expectancy and, and, you know, the smell of mince pies and, you know, and this Dickensian kind of atmosphere. And, um, I mean, the same thing can happen. I mean, to me, the, the core semantic content of a mystical experience is either, of course, or yes. And then you spend a long time unpacking what you said, of course, about uh, or yes about. But it's, it's something that I think we know already but we've forgotten that we knew it, and then we suddenly were reminded of it. And it's so basic and implicit. It's one, again, it's like music. You know, you listen to a piece of music and it moves you, but you can't quite put your finger on it and say exactly why, you know, it's, it's um, uh, that, you know, oh, it, it, this is what it means there, you know, if you, and that kills it. Um, but you know it means something. So it's, it's, it has a deeper kind of meaning and value, which we can't say in any kind of, prosaic explicit side of it. We can't make a formula for it, uh, but we can evoke it in some way. We can use language in an evocative way then. And again, that's what metaphor and, and sort of poet, poetry and figurative language does. It tries to evoke the same feeling in, in the listener that, you know, the you, the person speaking, uh, had originally. So as somebody listening to this, I imagine somebody uh, listening to this podcast right now and I imagine myself as that somebody not having read any of your work and hearing this and going like, oh my gosh, there's truth here. 
like I, I, I'm not familiar with hearing these ideas. Holy shit, maybe even. Uh, I quite I don't quite know exactly. They might have that feeling you're talking about. I don't know exactly why I feel really enlivened by this idea, but I feel kind of dead in my life where I'm at, and I want to invite in more of those experiences. I want to invite in uh, more of this right brain living. I want to cultivate uh, the imagination. Like, is there something that I can do? Because I thought, I mean, I'm talking about myself here. I, I went through a whole bunch of processes along my way. I'm actually reading your book now on Colin Wilson, Beyond the Robot. And I'm like, have so many parallels uh, with his life. Like, I'm like, wow, like even like blacking out and falling in the kitchen. I did that and broke my jaw. Like, like I have so many parallels. Dropping out of school at 16 because it just didn't make any sense to me why I was there. Uh, reading uh, voraciously. And then, it, you know, but then again, uh, it was at a different time. I ended up, I was also grew up in the project. So I ended up doing business and things to like, I'm going to make enough money so that I could write. That was the idea. But anyways, uh, uh, I, I imagine somebody listening to this and going, well, how, how, do I, how do I cultivate imagination? How do I activate this right hemisphere of the brain? How do I maybe hand the keys of, the, of my consciousness uh, over to the right hemisphere and at the same time not kill my ego? Because a lot of it's like, it's, that's again a left brain thing. It's like, who, is, who am I at war with? Okay, you know, it's imagination. It's anti-ego. You're all ego, you know, but it's like we need ego also or we, we wouldn't even know we existed. We would be floating through the mush and we wouldn't even be worried about an ego because we wouldn't even be aware that we were. Right. Um, well, I mean, I think one of the uh, you mentioned Wilson. I mean, he has been the major influence on my my thinking about this, um, this stuff, this sort of thing. And um I think with him, it's it's if you want to call it a way, it's a way of understanding. It's a way of knowledge. So it isn't about killing the ego. It's about understanding what the ego is and and why 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 it um, arose or left brain consciousness. I mean, we, I say we we experience it as a burden, and um, it is because it 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 pushes us out of the warm, buoyant waters of of the all, you know, of of nature or whatever you want to call it, you know, where at an earlier stage or when we're in a dream kind of state or when we're, you know, relaxed or something like that, we have a sense where we're no longer this kind of independent little atom of awareness. Um, we're, we're, we're buoyed up, we're held up by, you know, the, the broader waters and that kind of thing. And that's, that's a wonderful feeling. And we all crave that. And we, we crave that sense of union. And it, it could be as simple as people going to a football game, you know, and just getting, uh, losing themselves, their, their self in, in the sense of the crowd and all that. Um, but the thing, sadly, the way forward isn't that back there. Um, and in saying that, I'm not saying that isn't good in the sense of, uh, again, it, it is a natural inclination to do that. And we all do it. But the actual the, the cutting edge, as it were, is, is sort of to go past the kind of limit, uh, the, the barrier uh, of, of, of the ego, you know, where it seems a kind of barrier to ourselves. And... Um, kind of um, through that, you break into areas of your own uh, being that um, uh, you make contact with that, that deeper uh, source within us. And um, a, a very useful term that uh, Wilson uses, and I, sh I should mention Colin Wilson is a British writer. Um, uh, probably his best known work is called The Outsider, and this was written in the 1950s, so it's uh, you know, half a century ago. 
uh, already. <clears throat> and it was a kind of existential study of alienation in, in the modern world and these characters that he called outsiders that um, are compelled to find deeper meaning and purpose in life. Uh, they, 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 you know, they, they can't find satisfaction in the, in the everyday sort of, of um, you know, nine to five existence and they're compelled to find some deeper spiritual satisfaction. There's a variety of different ways where they pursue that. But one of the th themes or ideas that he comes up in, in trying to analyze the outsider's challenge is this notion of what he calls the robot. And the robot is a evolutionary labor-saving device Again, it's something that we've developed over time, and it's kind of automatic pilot. And it, um, if you learn how, to, when you learn how to type, or you learn how to ride a bicycle, or you learn how to play a musical instrument, we all know at first it's horrible, it's it's laborious, it's tedious. You know, it's just oh, you know all that kind of thing. You have to pay attention to every little step. But with any luck, at one point over time, suddenly you can do it. And you don't have to think about where you're going to put your fingers on the keyboard, or you don't have to think about where you're going to put your, you know, fingers on the the piano or the, you know, the frets on the guitar, or the clitoris uh, or anything like that. Uh, well, if you're lucky, I guess you know. I, I think I think with their instinct comes in, um, it kicks in a bit it earlier does. than than with these other things. I I, I think, um, although you know, some people do need lessons, I guess. But in any case, at some point, suddenly, um, all that kind of. Um, laborious work suddenly just runs by itself. Uh, and then you can think about what you want to type, or you can think about what you want to play, or when you go to drive, you can think about where you want to go to. So it, th that's taken over by this uh, kind of mechanical part of ourselves, or automatic part of ourselves, uh, Wilson calls the robot. I mean, it's different names in, in, in different sort of traditions. but And it's a very useful tool, because without it, we'd have to learn how to tie our shoes every day. We wanted to, that's why a lot of people wear loafers, I guess. Or, you know, um, and, um, you know, we'd have to learn how to drive every day. But what happens is, um, it, over time, we allow it to do its job too well. We allow it to take over too many of our you know, activities. And that's why, you know, you're listening to a piece of music that you know you love, but it's boring you to tears. Or, you know, you're, you know, you're absolutely um, tired of your wife or your husband or whatever, or your boyfriend or it, it, things that, and what Wilson discovered was that you can get to a point where anything pleasurable has no effect on you, but you can still be affected by pain in some way. You can be affected by inconvenience. And this is what he called the, the indifference threshold. And um, at a certain point when unconsciously, involuntarily, we allow more and more of our life to be run for us by the robot, we develop a very high indifference threshold. And, it, and we're indifferent to everything because we're not really living. The, the robot's doing everything for us. We don't know that. We just feel life is stale and has lost all its savor and boring because our indifference threshold is quite high. But if some kind of major inconvenience happens or a crisis suddenly we, we break that and we break through into ourselves. And his, the story that he tells all the time um, is the British writer um, Graham Greene, when he was a young man, uh, a teenager, he was abs absolutely bored to tears all the time. And um, he, he found a revolver that his older brother had in, in, in a cupboard. And he decided to play Russian roulette. He must have read about it in some story. So his damn Russians. Bro yeah, brother had a revolver. Had a, you know put 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 the cartridge in one one of the barrels and took it out, and uh, out into the common, spun the chamber and put it to his head, and when the hammer fell on an empty you know chamber, suddenly, 
the, the world was complete. He was so bored five seconds earlier that he, he was you know, willing to risk blowing his brains out just to get the slightest little thrill. Suddenly he said everything exploded into this in, incredible you know, panorama of meaning and everything, you know, lights were going on all over the place and possibilities and all this kind of thing. And nothing had happened in the actual world to change. Something had happened inside Graham Greene's head. And Wilson says the crisis, the crisis or the idea that he was about to blow his brains out suddenly made him make this kind of effort, this convulsion of kind of effort of will that pushed him out of his indifference threshold. And the reality was there all the time, was able to come in. And so the thing about that is, though, is that, well, yes, that's fine and dandy, and that's why all these outsiders that Wilson writes about, that they followed Nietzsche's advice and they lived dangerously. And crisis can make you feel alive, but there's something kind of absurd in the idea of going out of your way to find crisis because we invented civilization to minimize crisis. So the imagination comes in here. Wilson would say, it's like, well, you can use your imagination um, to imagine what would it be like if you were Graham Greene and you did put the revolver to your head and, you know, you did hear the click and, you know, but really, 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 you know, make the effort to imagine it. And suddenly, if you can really do that, you would, it would have the same effect. And basically what you're doing is you're trying to revive your sense of value. You're trying to remind yourself of what you already possess that you were to be taken away from you you would feel its loss most immediately and poignantly. I mean, i.e., if you blow your brains out, you would, you know, you'd lose everything. So th there's a sense in which Wilson says imagination is um, the faculty to grasp realities that are not immediately present. They're not, they're not, sent I mean, we take, to, we take to be reality as like what's immediately around me, you know, these four walls, this is reality. But it isn't. It's one part of reality, undeniably, but it's not the total of reality. I mean, not, we're, we're on the opposite sides of the world, right? And, but, uh, but when I look out my window, I, I, I see no evidence of you. So, I mean, I know you're there on the other side of the world, but I have to make a bit of a kind of real effort to grasp the fact that, yeah, I'm talking to somebody who's literally on the other side of the planet and how many miles that in, in, entails and all that kind of thing. And then, you know, the next, you get a sense of the Earth actually being this, this globe, you know, spinning in space. And... Um, it sounds trippy, but you can get a, a, a real feel of what that actually means. And that's, that's a sense where you actually, you know it factually, and then you know it experientially. You, 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 know, you, you know it as a reality, not just the fact. I, could, I, I imagine what I hear so often, because that's what pops up, this idea of just mere imagination, or that you know, uh, a, a lot of new age thinkers talk about, you know, it's only thought, you know, just let the thought disappear. That's, it's nothing, it's illusion. But, uh, but when we're dealing with, when we're working in material reality, which most people would, would agree that is reality, you know, uh, you know, if you walk in front of a car, you, there's a, a, something happens if you don't move. Uh, and, uh, we could test that you know, and, and find out. And if you play Russian roulette six times with a revolver, then, and you pull the trigger six times, you could test that for sure you will be the loser at that. Um, but I, 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 I what I'm, what I'm want to touch on, cause I think it's so beautiful. And again, Bo David Bohm comes to mind with this is that he was talking about participatory thought and literal thought. And we hear so often today's where, where, where people say that something is only real if it's literal, and, and they often use the, the, the term inaccurately. They will say something that's uh, figuratively 
true as literally true or they'll you know they they just and i think what they really want is they want to be heard and they want to be believed and we live in this idea of a post-truth era or post-modernism or whatever that whatever term we want to use to describe where there's alternative truth you know uh there is no actual truth it's all whatever you think it is you know uh you know, I could have arrived at three o'clock or four o'clock. Well, it all depends and depends on what time zone. And, you know, and it gets into this real strange place. But at the same time, when you have a lot of thought uh, cohering and participating with the material world, you can see uh, either something very beautiful like a heaven on earth or a Disneyland. I don't know what you think of Disneyland, but uh, but at the time it was it was at the time it was pretty remarkable in the way that like all of these modern technologies came together. But now we might look at it and go, wow, this is kind of frightening. It's like a gigantic circus uh, with robots. And then you've got, uh, you know, concentration camps on the other end where maybe there's a complete lack of imagination, but people participating in making reality uh, however it is. And I think maybe we're looking at now the potential of a global or international game of Russian roulette with, uh, I mean, much lower odds of death with, uh, I don't know what it is, a half a percent COVID death rate. Uh, but it, it may be for some people the most real experience of Colin Wilson's Russian roulette uh, opportunity to become enlivened. You don't even have to use full imagination because you're actually living during a pandemic whether i think so many people grasp on and i and i and i and i feel that craving in myself it's like fuck i want certainty i want to just like it's a conspiracy it's not really real how many people do i know that have died from covid and i'm like well i, I don't think the entire world is conspiring and there is no virus you know like uh, i also fear that nobody is maybe fear is not the right word i think that there's nobody like in control of the wheel, so to speak. It's almost like we're dealing with like ripples in the systemic structure that we've participated in creating together. Uh, and, uh, and here we are. We're in a game of Russian roulette, a very real one, uh, and we don't have to fully use our imagination, but we can. We could intensify that. We could imagine, instead of saying that COVID either doesn't exist or we're at low risk because we're young or, or, or whatever, we want to get back to business as usual or whatever it is, instead, we could take this as an opportunity to say, well, what if I did get COVID? And what if the odds of, of living, uh, what if COVID exists forever and like we never come up with a cure for it? And, and, and I were to get it at 70 years old and the odds of living at 70 years old was one out of three. So really, you know, there's two bullets in this six six chamber revolver. Because uh, and this is maybe something that really could uh, the an image of the guy who was dying and like taking all these like back in the day uh, chemotherapy, and then eventually like a horse got away and he like was running with him. I think it was in the tr the book about Trump uh, and uh, Dark Star Rising, and then he like. Essentially, it evoked the healing that his body needed somehow. They oh, yes, 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 yes. Well, that no, that that's uh, yeah, that's Quimby, Phineas Quimby, who starts the well, he basically kind of starts. Well, he um, Mary Baker Eddy becomes one of his, his students and it's kind of the mental science or science of health kind of thing. No, he, he was someone who suffered from um, a number of ailments and he'd been to mes this is mid 19th century uh, America. And he'd been to mesmerists, you know, trying to use magnets to heal him and a variety of different things. And um, 
he found that he couldn't make efforts. Every time, every time he tried to make an effort, he, he would sort of, you know, run out of steam very quickly. And um, long story short, he went, someone told him to go horse riding or something like that, and that, that would help him, so he decided to try it. But um, he, he didn't actually ride the horse. He got, you know, in a carriage. And then, but he, he started making the horse go as fast as he, as he could make it go kind of thing. And what happened to him is what the American philosopher William James um, studied, and which is known as second wind, which, you know, most athletes know, is when you, you know, you push yourself and you feel like you've completely tanked out, you don't have any gas left, and you just try a little bit more, and then bang, uh, another uh, gas tank um, kicks in, and suddenly, you know, you can, you can start all over again. So Quimby just kind of discovered that himself. He pushed himself beyond his the limits that he can, he, James said we, we live subject to degrees of fatigue, you know, um, that uh, limits that become only by habit to obey. You know, we, 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 we say that's as far as I can go. And we, through habit, we come to accept that. And what Quimby did and what James did himself in his own personal experience and also other, other um, psychiatrists and doctors did, they called it the bullying treatment was to make these patients who, oh, no, I can't possibly, no, I can't, I can't get up, I can't do it, who just refuse to make any efforts, they force them. I mean, you wouldn't do it today. You, you would be, you know, vilified for, you know, for something, but it actually helped these people. He forced them to make these efforts, and they pushed back their artificial limits, and suddenly all this influx of energy came in. So fundamentally, we're all like that. I mean, we're, we're, not, we're not neurosthetic patients, all of us, in the same way that, the people that James treated or Quimby himself was and then later went on to treat. I mean, he, he blended in mental science and all this kind of thing. But I mean, this is the um, sort of thing, again, this is a sort of the robot in, the, in, in a way, you know, it's the same thing, you know, we, we, we believe we are, this is as far as we can go, that's it, I don't have any more. And nine times out of 10, that's a habit. And uh, the, the enigmatic, uh, Greek Armenian esoteric teacher Gurdjieff uh, was one of the you know remarkable men of the 20th century. He devised a whole system of different kind of techniques and practices in order to push people past these artificial limits. And uh, many many years ago uh, in 1980s, I, I was involved in the Gurdjieff work for a while, and I, I can I can say that they worked. I mean, I practiced these what they're called the movements. You know, if you do this kind of thing, think of that 15 times over. And I was given these sets of movements to do, and I couldn't do them for the life of me. And I kept dropping out. And then one day I said, damn it, I'm and I went, and then bang, it just like burst in. And um, I, I just had this tremendous sense of energy coming in, which I, and, and a you know, powerful sense of well-being. So we, we have all this kind of stuff in there, but we become so used to accepting certain ideas and limits of ourselves that um, we often need to be forced, you know, through crisis or inconvenience or to have a, the guru whack you in the head, you know, to, to, to get you past it. Gosh, what comes to mind for me is that I also uh, would, I think that uh, someone listening might think, oh, it's just about pushing yourself through pain. Uh, and I don't think that that's only what it was. I think I was really good at pushing myself through pain. And I think that's kind of why I'm where I'm at. Like I shouldn't, like if you do like a case study on my life, like some kid growing up in the projects that has a 10th grade education, shouldn't make millions of dollars and lose it multiple times and then start multiple organizations and live on a uh, retreat center in Hawaii that he purchases with his fiance and has a successful relationship when he's, you know, like it, it shouldn't happen. That shouldn't, those things shouldn't go together. And I think for a long time, what went wrong? Yeah. For a long time, I think I had, one, I had like a, I was like a one trick pony and it was, 
forward. You know, I, I picked, I even have King Leonidas tattooed on my, le- on my left arm. And it was like, forward, go like, 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 like with all power and strength, like the warrior. And then eventually my body actually broke. Like there was a moment in time where I think like I'd come up against the absolute threshold of like what pure force would go. And it wasn't like I was doing, if I think if I, if I didn't have my uh, moral compass, I, w- I would have been able to keep going using force all the way till the end. But like I become hamstrung by my moral compass. Like I couldn't go any f- further forward while at the same time staying uh, true to my own ethics and, and, and uh, compassion. So I myself broke and then it opened up a, a new vista. I remember where I was actually physically uh, and literally curled over into a ball and all my muscles were spasming. This was four and a half, about four years ago, and I couldn't walk. And uh, eventually, with the help of a walker, I was able to start walking again. I lost all of almost all my muscle mass, got down into the 120s. And uh, it was through this uh, that I that an entire world opened up, like a world of like, oh, shit, there's this thing called trauma and there's an actual physiological response to trauma you know, I need to look at that. And then I got trapped in the trauma world. Like I've got to figure out everything based on what trauma is causing this thing. And, you know, I started to, you know, get stuck in this new, maybe robotic form, so to speak. And then my goal eventually, and I think that's where I'm standing and talking to you today, and maybe why I feel so drawn to your work is it became, how do I introduce, uh, if you use alchemy, like how do I introduce more and more into my vessel? What can my vessel take? Like I used to read a book and I would say, man, this book is really complicated. I don't understand this book. I should put it down and read another book. And now I may say, this book is fucking hard to understand, whatever it is. I am going to look up every word I don't know. I'm going to be honest with myself about the words I don't know. And then if I have to read this sentence three fucking times, I'm going to do it. I'm going to learn. Instead of like, a force, like you're stupid, you got to do it or read this book really fast. Like, I'm like, I'm going to just be with this book, you know, and be with that discomfort. I picture that idea of you tapping your head and rubbing your belly. And uh, I got turned on to something called Feldenkrais because nothing would work. Chiropractic didn't work. Getting injections in my spine didn't work. Nothing got my body to release. I had people like, you know, uh, new age healers, which sometimes work because sometimes you just need someone in there to like cause a bunch of pain. Someone came in and was like, caused me so much pain that I actually cried from physical pain, which is super rare. I used to get fillings done without Novocaine. And I'm like, like tears are coming out of my eyes. Didn't help. Like I just felt super in pain and had like a big, like, like bloody thing on my stomach. But it turned me on to something called Feldenkrais. I don't know if you've heard of Moshe Feldenkrais, but I've, I've heard of it. Yeah. And, and it's, being as ease as easeful as you can and as compassionate as you can with your body and it's he does something called awareness through movement and it would be moving in the most subtle way like take your shoulder blade and like move it in the size of a dime towards the right while at the same time every time you move it to the right move your eye to the left and then and it's just like and then t- you know move your and slide your heel back and it's just like and it and it sounds so easy. It's like moving millimeters, but it like your whole system just begins to like it's impossible and tense up and like huh, I'm gonna force my way through it. But like, but force doesn't work here, you know. Like the, like somehow something else has to come into being, and then all of a sudden you start to like picture moving all of those things in a, in that specific way, and you're like, well, maybe breathing would help it. Like maybe like maybe oh my my glutes are tensing. Like he would call this parasitic tension. My glutes are tensing. That's not helping me with this movement. 
and uh, and you become you find another way to essentially get that second wind. Uh, and I think for a lot of people, maybe that second wind could be found in cultivating these more gentle, imaginative ways of being, this less Sisyphean or Herculean uh, way of being in the world and more uh, maybe Dionysian way of being in the world or uh, I guess you would say maybe Athenian way of being in the world because like putting together some type of uh, maybe I want to maybe I want to go here with this because imagination. Some people might say, "Okay, you're just you know." They picture maybe Fantasia and Disney, you know, and that Disney movie where everything is just pink elephants floating around, and you know, it's the you know, you take structure and you throw it out the window. We so at least I do. I so often want to say, "Okay, I've got this new way of being. I'm throwing this other thing out." And uh, maybe we want to bring up Maslow here because I think Maslow was inspired. Yeah, well, I mean, well, I, I, I think, I mean, imagination, I said, it's not, it's, I mean, there's all that, like that, the fantasy and all that kind of stuff. But again, I'm, to, I'm talking about it in a way to, uh, as I said, grasping a reality that's not immediately present. And to get the second win doesn't necessarily have to be a physical um, effort. I mean, that that's one example, athletes or something like that. Um, um, but I mean, you can be very tired and oh my god I'm exhausted or something and nothing and then suddenly if you turn on the news or something there's some interesting bit of news and suddenly you're wide awake um, something grasps your interest um, meaning is something that is often can revive and that's a mental effort you have to grasp that imaginatively um, or also I know if I'm, I'm writing and I um, I'll usually hit a kind of early afternoon lull and it, it's there. And, um, but if I turn my attention to something else, just for a brief time, it could just be a few minutes, suddenly it passes. So it's, it's um, I think, again, this is way of knowledge. If you know you have these other reserves there, if, you, if you've experienced something like second wind often enough, you can call your own bluff. And um, it isn't a straining kind of thing. I mean, that's... Um, I get this ties in again to what I was saying Wilson before saying how crisis or you know some kind of convulsive effort can you know throw off the robot and the other way you can do it is if you just put more intention more attention and intention into what you're doing throughout the day or whatever it might be or some repetitive task um, there's a, a, a quote from Herman Hesse's novel The Journey to the East where he says, a, 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 a long time devoted to small details exalts us and increases our strength. And um, the character in, in that novel, um, he's, he takes care of the music for you know, his, the, the, his league. There's this, you know, the, the journey of the league. It's this you know, kind of spiritual society. And it's a kind of imaginative you know, uh, sort of story. Uh, but he's in charge of all, taking care of the music and has all, all these kind of tiny, tiny details. And Wilson discovered this too. It's like if you... Um, you know, some repetitive task that would immediately strike you as a bore. And what you would do, okay, instead of saying, oh, that's boring, saying, okay, I'm going to put twice as much effort into doing it than I normally would. And it's not frantic. It isn't like, Argh. it's just like, okay, I'm going to pay more attention to doing it. Um, I'm, I'm going to be more there, even though right now it's just it's the last thing I want to do. But I can't avoid it. I have to do it. Whatever it is, cleaning the house or something. I mean, he tells a story. Um, and I, I tell it in my book about him where this again back this is back in the 60s and um, he was a great fan of LPs and um, and what he wanted to do was um, take his record collection and he, he bought all these 
nice new clean kind of plasticine envelopes to put them in so that they wouldn't get any dust on them and all that. So he had a big stack of them. So he had to take it out, dust it, put it in, take it out. And it's kind of, oh, what a bore. And then he just, then he, he realized after about doing it for about a half hour, he was actually thoroughly enjoying doing it. So um, if he listened to himself, his habitual mind saying to himself, this is a real bore, uh, he would start to do it and maybe do a little bit and just get disgusted and forget about it. But somehow he kind of tricked himself into enjoying it. And is, there's a way you can apply the imagination in that way too, saying, okay, like what if, you know, uh, like, like you, I mean, the other thing you said before about, okay, what if I, I get COVID? What if this never goes away? What if this is the new normal? All that kind of thing. That's true. I mean, and fundamentally it is, you'll die, you know, um, and, but that's the main thing anyway. I mean, you know, um, Gurdjieff, I mentioned earlier, and the German philosopher Martin Heidegger, they both arrived at um, the same solution to the problem of what Heidegger called man's forgetfulness of being. And Gurdjieff said that we're all asleep. Is that if we could somehow fix in our mind the reality that we are going to die one day, you know, uh, I mean, just, uh, we all know that vaguely, yes, it happens to everybody, yeah, I'll get around to it at some point kind of thing. But if you actually realize in a real moment, like, well, actually, it is going to happen. I am going to die somehow. That would be the same effect as realizing like, well, I might get COVID kind of thing. It's a reality. We know it factually, but then to know it in this, but it's, it's what I call knowing in italics or, or really knowing because we don't, we don't, this is where language works against us because we don't, at least in our English language, we don't have the subtle distinction between knowing something factually and knowing it in, 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 this, in this other way. I mean, in ancient Greek, um, there's a difference between episteme, which is kind of factual knowledge or knowledge that you gain through books or experience, and then there's what they call gnosis, which is this kind of immediate, direct, non, non-discursive kind of knowing. The kind of knowing that when you're thirsty and you drink a cold drink on a hot day, you immediately feel it. It's that kind of knowing. I mean, and th- that's generally thought of in kind of mystical terms, and that, 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 that's true. There's a whole, the, the Gnostics is a whole, you know, uh, uh, religious um, sect devoted to it, and the Hermetics were as well. But on our everyday experience, it happens too. You know, it happens too. It's, you know, if you, if it's, you, you some smell comes to you, um, and it reminds you of some place you were, you know, 10 years ago on holiday, and then for two seconds, you're there again. I mean, I had this experience recently, and again, during the early weeks of the lockdown here, um, when it became a real treat to go out for a walk, something you did all the time anyway. You know, the crisis, the constraint made you pay attention to it more. And so you enjoyed it more when you went out. And I remember walking just in my neighborhood here, and it was a sunny day. And for a few seconds, I was convinced that the beach was just to my left. If I went down the street, I'd get to the beach. There's no beach here. This is bloody London. I'm in the middle. But I had a real, and suddenly I think, what? And I smelled, you know, I smelled the tar on the, <laughs> on the boardwalk and all that. And I thought, whoa, what had, I, I just generated this whole, like a micro dream, virtual reality, lucid dream right there. And it was all of a few seconds. But that's the way in which the, the imagination, it somehow, it creates a kind of reality in that way. And that just happened kind of casually. I mean, it, it was precipitated by, as I said, the lockdown and creating these kind of mini crisis conditions. So involuntarily, I, I was I was cringing to the to the Russian roulette kind of thing, and when I, I relaxed, it's like another story. I, I, around this time, I, uh, 
I went out, I had a tiny little garden here, and I went out and I looked up and I was surprised by the sun. And it wasn't that the sun was hiding behind a cloud and then said peekaboo. It was like, I looked up and I said, what is that? And of course, I've seen the sun my entire life. But suddenly it struck me as like, what is that? Thing? And it's just, I don't know how to say it, but it was like a mini mystical kind of experience where something that is utterly familiar, it's the most banal thing you can think of, is suddenly very strange and new and fresh. And for a moment or whatever it is, I was seeing it with both barrels. I was seeing it with both hemispheres, you know. That's beautiful. So the possibility is there. I mean, it, it happens. It happens to us now. In some way, we don't, in some way, we don't really have to go out of the way to make it happen. We just have to pay attention to when it happens now and chart those experiences and rack them up. And then the theory, you, that you slot them into the theory or what we, okay, this is what's happening. Oh, yeah, well, here's, here, here's evidence of that. And that sinks down into you. You know, the knowledge is real because you, you have experiential evidence for it. One of the powerful things that I'm looking to do here with um, where we're living here on the, on the coast of the Hamakua coast of the Big Island. Um, and from what I understand, Hamakua means uh, breath of the gods, uh, which is quite interesting. And, uh, and uh, I'm looking right now and I, I could see nothing except the land here and then endless horizon just i could just i would if i trusted my internet connection i would turn the computer around and show you uh what i'm looking at i'll, I'll use my imagination there you go <laughs> save 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 money that way too using our imagination <laughs> uh, so you know i'm looking at the end of this and i'm like you know gosh you know i know that at this at some point you know, land is at the end of, of, of this, of this, uh, you know, this water, but then at, there is no end. Eventually this circles back and I'm looking at my own back and I'm looking up at the sky right now and there's some clouds in the blue sky and in the clouds beyond that, if there wasn't, the sun wasn't out, I would see, you know, trillions of suns, uh, you know, that are, I mean, that are a thousand, I mean, the sun's a thousand times bigger than the earth. I mean, these ideas of like, I, I think back of a time where this would be just humans were just in this awestruck of, oh my, the world is so beautiful. And this idea that, you know, scientism is maybe, I think I've heard you call it, and maybe that's just what it's called, that somehow we've just explained all of the awe away. You know, like, oh, suns are just gas balls in the sky, and, uh, uh, you know, we're on an you know, earth. And it just happens to be that this worked and we, we were, we were primordial ooze in the ocean. And then, you know, trying to survive, we've become this and here we are, and we're probably going to destroy our environment and then cease existing forever. You know, and I, I, I hear people speak about this kind of with like passion, almost like they're excited about that. That's what it is. And I go, but if I think of this, I, I feel like all of my vitality like leaves me. And I'm just like, well, what the hell is the point of anything at all? And uh, I, I just, I hearken back to a time where there was this sense of awe. And I think that we live in a time now where there's no reason that the sense of awe can't be even greater today than it was for our ancestors. And maybe you want to touch on some of those points of senses of awe. I, I, and be, maybe to lead you into that, uh, when you were talking a minute ago about the looking at the sun and having this experience of like, oh my gosh, you know, I'm, I'm, my right brain is taking over here, uh, my right hemisphere. 
is that uh, the idea that during like Homeric times, uh, that when they're talking about the gods speaking to them, they would actually hear, I think Ian McGrokris talked about this, they would actually hear the gods speaking. It wasn't like they're trying to be poetic. They would actually hear the words of their own mind as this external god speaking. Maybe now uh, that voice has been you know, appropriated by scientism, and then now our own internal voice becomes that God that we have it all figured out, and it kills our own off. Well, I mean, this is this is uh, one of the, um, you can say this is kind of the collateral damage that come with the benefit of developing this independent rational mind, which has, you know, brought us many, many, we wouldn't be able to have this conversation without it and all that. So, you know, we, we, we needn't go through a long list of all the good things that's come to us, but it has come at a price. And it's come at a price where um, it has marginalized the input from the other hemisphere or, or from the imagination, um, from that, that part of our psyche that adds um, another dimension of reality to the experience. Whereas this is the thing, we, we accept this kind of dehydrated fact as reality. Um, and one reason we do is because it's very useful, it's very practical. Um, the, the, the left brain, you know, uh, precision, accuracy uh, kind of consciousness is very, very practical. It's very, it's utilitarian. It's able to make things happen. It can put, you know, a man on the moon. It can put stuff out beyond the solar system and it's still going, you know, forever. Who knows where it's going to end up and so on and so on and so many other things. So it has an incredible utilitarian and practical value and use. And we have come to associate use with truth. You know, it's, it, it works, it's true, kind of thing. The other way of knowing, it doesn't have that practical application. It has an inner application. It enriches our experience. It enriches us. We are more, you know, we, our, our being is, is enhanced through it. But it doesn't necessarily have a kind of immediate practical kind of use, you know, use-oriented thing. And... Um, that's why, you know, that's why things like poetry and beauty and awe are, are marginalized. And we're increasingly, oh, yeah, you know, if I, you know, I, I mean, I said this thing, you know, before about being surprised by the sun and someone could say, oh, yeah, you know, what, what, what were you smoking or, so, or what were you on or something like that? And I wasn't anything. It just, it just was kind of the conditions were such that um, somehow um because because it was this crisis i i somehow was in a little bit more kind of you know active mode and when i hadn't been going out every day you know instead of just popped out for a little bit and looked up it's like whoa you know um you, you, it's real it, it's real and and we don't understand when we have these experience what, what it means you know we, it, it's um you know oh i was i was on something or whatever we we don't know what to do with them. We just kind of marginalize them and, and think of them as anomalous. But actually, we're actually really seeing a reality that's, that, that's really, truly there. And we know throughout history, there's many men and women who have, have seen the world like that. You know, William Blake, um, Julian Norwich, you know, um, Hildegard of Bingen, um, you know, so many other you know, poets and mystics have, have, have been um, able to see um, reality in, in its full kind of depth. And... Um, the thing is, this is the thing, we can't, you can't prove that that's the case, you can only show it. And so the other, the person you're trying to prove it to, they have to be open to some degree to be able to recognize it. 
And I guess, you know, where we're at today is we're still in the thrall of um, science and reason and rationalities uh, having to liberate itself from the dogma of the church 400 years ago, that any kind of um, toleration of anything that's anything like that at all seems to the, the you know, the guardians of, of rationality to be um, letting in, you know, back the, the God or whatever it is, you know, uh, through the back door. And there, there is this militant kind of aspect where, I mean, even uh, uh, just, it's not quite the same thing, but I think it's in the same ballpark. I mean, um, I've stopped using Wikipedia. For one reason is that it's completely biased towards, um, against anything about the paranormal, anything about the mystical, anything about the esoteric. If you read most of the bios in there, um, it's all pseudoscience, it's this kind of thing. So there is, it's, it presents itself as this kind of objective source of knowledge, but it isn't. It's biased towards the reigning scientific materialist reductionist kind of thing, and it downplays and, and um, you know, minimizes um, the reality and importance of, of the other in any way. And so there is this thing, and you know, Miguel Chris says, you know, the, the two sides are in this kind of rivalry. They're in this kind of battle. Um, and the, the left um, uh, enacted a coup d'etat a couple of centuries ago and has, you know, more or less become more and more dominant. And it's increasingly marginalizing the other. And, um, but it's, it's a no-win situation to do that because it's the same thing with an individual psyche. If, if you're, if you're hyper-rational, and you completely marginalize and, and disenfranchise this other side of you, the emotions, the intuitive, the empathic, the implicit, oh, you know, you're, you're going to wind up in a breakdown at some point, or, or certainly go schizophrenic. And this is one of the things McGilchrist says, is, you know, our, our Western culture these days is heading increasingly towards a more schizophrenic kind of, um, you know, uh, I mean, it's a lot of... <laughs> There's a lot of stuff going on at the same time, you know. Um, I mean, we, we have so many, one after the other. I mean, we had, you know, climate change, um, COVID, uh, the Black Lives Matters, and, and other things happening at the same time as well. Trump, the rise of, you know, the far right, or at least, you know, authoritarian figures in world politics. And so many things are being upended. And... Um, it's time of confusion and, and chaos and uncertainty. But as I say in the book on Russia, this was also uh, similar 100 years ago um, and, and before the Bolsheviks came in. That too was a time of kind of chaos and uncertainty and turbulence, but it, it, holds, the, it, it holds the promise of something new coming out of it. I mean, Nietzsche, you mentioned, he's, you know, Dionysus, you know, you must have chaos within oneself to give birth to a dancing star. So we have the chaos. We don't. We, we've got the chaos down. It's giving birth to the dancing star. That's going to be um, our challenge. And what was it to balance Dionysus with uh, Apollo? Was that what it was? That was yeah. Apollo. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's another way you could see that these polarities. I mean, it's not exactly left and right, but very much. You know, Dionysus is the god of ecstasy and abandon and intoxication and and throwing off the self the ego and union, you know, uh, with nature and all that. And Apollo is the dream world, this, this perfect aesthetic world of order and harmony. And, um, you know, he's the, 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 the musician and all of that. And um, again, it's another form of, of these polarities that um, are in opposition, but when they work together, they create something that transcends both of them. I mean, one of my, uh, one of the most important ideas that I got from, from Jung, I, I wrote a book on Jung and written about him in different contexts, is what he calls the transcendent function. 
And this is when um, you know two polarities, two two opposite, two two opposites, two contraries, are in this complete you know um, antithetical situation, and the and the person who's experiencing them goes through a horrible, horrible tension because they're caught between them, a rock and a hard place, as you, as you might say. And if you can endure that long enough, the unconscious at some point will send up some kind of symbol that transcends the 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 the, the loggerhead. Uh, not in some cosmic sense, it just rises up above it. And in the personal experience, um, what had seemed to be some ir- irresolvable situation, you, you could not see any way out of it, suddenly it's not solved, but it's no longer a problem. You, you have risen up above it and you have changed. The problem hasn't been solved, but you have changed. Your horizons have been broadened. You know, uh, you were just talking about the endless horizon. So maybe before you were stuck in this stuffy room like Sartre's play No Exit, you're stuck in the stuffy room, it's stuck between all these people that are arguing all the time, you see no way out of it, and suddenly, bang, you're there in front of your window, and um, you haven't solved the problem, but you're not caught up in it anymore. So you've risen up above it. In some way, this can happen culturally, too. Um, and, you know, there's no guarantee, but that's, that, that's the hope. So somehow, the crisis, what we're going through now, um, which I think in many ways can be traced back to our, our so far inability um, to harmonize the two sides of ourselves, you know. Um, uh, this other side of ourselves is coming out in, in strange kind of ways, eruptive sorts of ways, because it doesn't go away, it doesn't disappear. So it, it needs that, that, that hyper-rationality needs to be transcended in some way, and it, it either be transcended creatively, um, or it'll, you know, be transcended in some other way. In the spirit of the Greek mythos, uh, talking about Apollo and Dionysus. Uh, I read a book a time back that uh, proposed that essentially the world we're living in right now uh, is a world that is essentially run uh, largely by the titanic forces, like by the titans, this idea of this machine plowing forward. I actually remember one of my big, like, initiations of consciousness was through addiction, being addicted to opiates and desperately trying to get off of them. Again, this, I couldn't figure out how to get off of them. All of the ways that I tried wouldn't work. I tried to tell myself I'm not addicted, but I was still addicted. I tried to tell myself, okay, well, it's, I guess it's totally fine to do. I'll just do it in small doses to just function. I found that I couldn't function. I never took it to get high, like for the high itself. I took it so that I could function in a world of business because I was just incapable of it otherwise. I just could not get my, the, I, I went as far as I could without them. And then eventually I needed, I, I needed, I had surgery on, on, on some, on my nose, had it reconstructed and had some dental, dental surgery from broken teeth from growing up in the hood, you know, and, uh, and I took opiates for the first time and I thought, oh my gosh, this is like a limitless pill. I could like, I don't feel this like stirring emotion. Like it was like before all of my emotion was rat, like, like waving. And all of a sudden the water was still for the first time. And I had like full clarity of thought. And I'm like, even as I say it, I could feel that in my body. And even the, it's almost like the, the earth responded by wind blowing in through, through my, through my window. It's like, whoa, very, very, very palpable feeling. And, uh, you know, and I feel, and I, I like this, and you know, this metaphor of the time that we're in being titanic, essentially 
for for the sheer sake of moving the machine forward. And initially, I heard a podcast with Joe Rogan talking about somebody's aboga experience. It was the first person he interviewed that had taken aboga, and he said that he wanted to meet God. And I just this this insight came to me while you were talking. And he said he wanted to meet God, and he pictured that he would meet, you know, some type of God uh, that was like beautiful, create, you know, doing like creating this thing of beauty. And uh, he was shot out into space, and he saw uh, beings running, these big muscular beings running in circles, carrying great weights, uh, keeping the world, you know, moving forward. And he didn't use the term Titan, but I think. You know, that is the kind of world that that state of being that the person who took the aboga was. I'm kind of doing some dream interpretation of his aboga journey. And aboga is actually an uh, onirogen. It's actually not a psychedelic. It's an, an it's, sorry, an oniophrenic, meaning uh, it's also a Greek term, meaning dream maker. So it like puts you in a lucid dream. And uh, and I see a lot of people that take plant medicines, myself included, and this tendency to want to make that experience, uh, Krishnamurti comes to mind, uh, wanting to take the, the psychedelic experience that you have or the medicine that you take and make this medicine the authority. So instead of it being a person, it's now this medicine or it's this experience you had on the medicine. So now you're creating a heuristic of the entire world that is uh, limited by your experience. And then you go back to the medicine, just like you would go back to church to continuously get, uh, and not that that's a bad thing. Sometimes that could open up gigantic new vistas, but I think maybe some people might start feeling stuck there. Like, Hey, you know, I keep taking mushrooms over and over again, but the rest of my, you know, my material life is maybe falling apart. You know, what, 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 what do I do? And I, and I speak about this from like experience, you know, like when you, when you do anything for long enough, that is like pulling you away from the material world. Uh, eventually that, that begins to, uh, fray at the edges, you know, I picture like a sweater kind of fraying. Well, we started out, yes, we have caretakers in the cosmos, so we have a responsibility to both. We have to take care of ourselves. You know, the first part of the physical world that we're responsible for is ourselves. Um, you know, and so we do have to do that. And, um, yeah, if, if, yeah, you know, if you're too, if you're too immersed in the inner worlds and the psychedelic journey and all that, as I said, the, the dishes pile up, you know, after a while, um, it may be beautiful to you, but no one's going to come visit you anymore. And uh, likewise, if you're too, too deep, um, sunk into the, the physical world, then, you know, you, you dry up completely and you're dehydrated. So it's learning this balance. I mean, it's all a work in progress. Um, I mean, my myself, I haven't tried Iboga. I, I, I haven't. I mean, I've had some experiences with um, some psychedelics and they've been interesting, but they haven't been a major kind of um, influence on on my work. And I, I think the difference is that um, I think I'm more interested in trying to understand consciousness as I, I as it's there when I wake up in the morning. And, you know, wh why do I start out during the day, early day feeling up and all this and kind of rearing to go and then sometime by around four o'clock, it's like, Oh, my God, the world is empty and miserable. And it's meaningless and all that. And then a couple hours later, no, it's not. And, you know, it's like, so what's, you know, uh, what's happening there, you know, these ups and downs. And um, like I said, I think we have these moments when uh, the other brain kicks in or we're less robotic and but they kind of go by a little blip and you know so i'm trying to track those down and you know i i, I enjoy you know my 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 inebriants and intoxicants but i haven't 
I mean, that whole idea that, okay, I, I got this far on this trip and then I'm going to, next time I'm taking, I'm, I'm going to start from there and then work and work. I guess you could do that if you're working in the context of some kind of, you know, therapy or experience. But um, my, my own take, and this is from, you know, mostly reading and studying, and I also know some people that are really involved in the psychedelic community here, here in the UK, is, um, I mean, there isn't the psychedelic experience. You know, it's 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 a medium to which lots of different things can happen. It's an enabler for different things can happen, but there isn't like Leary, like there was the psychedelic experience. Well, there, it really wasn't this one kind of thing, you know, and it didn't guarantee that you were going to be a spiritual person, you know, after you're taking it anyway. So, um, I mean, that's Titan. I mean, the Titans were, you know, uh, these mythological Greek uh, characters in, in Greek mythology um, that were these incredible powers and these colossal powers, and they had to be tamed and um, you know, beaten, defeated by by the gods, by Zeus and the gods, and you know the Kraken. Wake the release the Kraken. That's the Kraken is a one of the Titans, and it's this kind of raw energy um, that um, you, you can use, you can make use of, but it's you know you have to sort of really know what you're doing. Yeah, I mean, I look at some of the things that your books. I know we're about to wrap up this podcast episode here. I, some of the things that your books have uh, brought to light for me, and I. I'm looking at kind of my reading list grow. Uh, <laughs> you know, I'm like, wow, this is so fascinating. This is fascinating. It was like, I was like, where in the hell were the teachers like you when I was going to school? Like, like how come, like how do how do topics, like how does our history become so boring? How does the how does in, the English language become? Oh gosh, it's English class. Like. Like these words have whole story. A uh, one word has a whole story, and then when they're woven together, they t- they tell a they tell a whole history of a people, and then they tell a history of how other peoples began. You know, like wars and battles, and you know, like famine and like all of these things. Like, like I started to look at like etymology of words, and it's like holy shit! Like that's what that word means. Like like there's it's like the sun. It, there's it, it's not a new sun. Uh, you know, it's not a new word. The word's still that same word that's always been there sitting in that book, you know, but all of a sudden it's like, holy shit. Like I had no idea like where this word came about. I just thought like, you know, a dictionary came out. Like, I don't know. I never, I I, like, like I I never actually like consciously thought this out, but tacitly I, I just kind of lived from the standpoint that a dictionary came out at some point It had all these words in it. And then like we used them like, like I, I didn't have a like living gnosis that like these words originated from an experience. Someone put words together and then now I'm just like throwing these words around haphazardly. Well, psychedelic is a case in point. It was a word invented by um, um, uh, Huxley and um, God, who's uh, hum, hum, uh, Humphrey Osman. Um, you know, they were trying to come up with the term to describe what they were doing. And now it's it's used. So um, no, I mean it's it's um, again it's, it sounds kind of you know trite, but well, one of my favorite stories in kind of the, the kind of psychedelic or mystical experience kind of realm is um, um, comes from the Russian writer and philosopher P. D. Uspensky, who was most known as a sort of the leading student of Gurdjieff, but again he's someone who was very important in his own right and a brilliant writer and thinker. But in the early 20th century, um, 
he wrote um, a long essay called Experimental Mysticism. And this was an account of his experiments with things like nitrous oxide and probably hashish in some form. Um, but he tells this wonderful story about how um, in between these sessions, he was sitting and smoking and having a cigarette and he looked over at his ashtray and it was a copper ashtray. And suddenly everything about the ashtray came to him all at once. You know, the, the history of smoking, where was tobacco discovered? How did it, how did it get to Europe? The ashtray was made of copper. Uh, when, when did mining begin? When did smelting begin? The mystery of metals and ores. Fire, when, who, when did they discover fire? And suddenly he, 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 he wrote down on a piece of paper, he was trying to capture some of the, these ideas that were just flooding him. And the next day he read what he wrote and he wrote, a man can go mad from one ashtray. And the moral, of that the moral of that story is that everything contains an infinite amount of information and knowledge. You know, every little thing does. And in order just to get by, in order just to survive, in order just to move around, we involuntarily limit the amount of reality in each thing that we're immediately aware of. We limit it to this kind of sub trickle. There's a, you know, Tuxi says it's limited to the, amount, the trickle of consciousness necessary to survive on this planet. But what happens in these other moments, either through taking, you know, a, a plant medicine or meditating or, or just happens by chance, is somehow some more of that reality comes in. And that's when you're surprised by the sun. You're surprised by the ashtray. You're surprised by some word that you, I mean, I, I remember when I was a kid, something I, I used to do is just take a word and just repeat it. And at some point it would turn into this utterly strange weird kind of thing in my head and I just felt like it didn't mean anything anymore and it just opened up and you know and it's that's sort of like it is now we we are so familiar to everything we, we've made every and again it's not evil to do that it's it's just that it's something that needs to be done but we do it too well we we, we need to be able to we need to be able to get get kind of in the driver's seat with this stuff because it, it happens involuntarily um, but if we somehow are able to either pump up the right brain or, or, you know, dampen down the left a little bit so that they're both, you know, kind of, you know, when the yin and yang kind of meet and bang, that's when it opens up. And you have the factual reality of the thing plus its experience or experience of its reality. And its reality exceeds the moment. The reality exceeds the, the sensory data of the moment. I mean, if, if, if all we were aware of was the sensory data of the moment, we would be imbeciles. Most likely we are anyway. But you know what I mean? We would be like some kind of amoeba or snail, which is only, at most, aware of some kind of very immediate sense of, 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 of now. Whereas we have this continuity. You know, we have a continuity. That, that gives us the world. A world is the continuity of our moments of consciousness, you know. And there, that, that, that's, one way, that's one way we were caretakers of the cosmos, because actually, in the end, we wind up creating the world. We wind up creating the world in the sense of we, we actualize it in these moments of our continuous consciousness. It has a continuity that it would lack otherwise. So the now, this moment, for human beings, contains more than just the sensory inputs of the moment. Like the ashtray, it contains the history of all plant, mineral, and human life and ancestry and ex and and experience, like in in one piece. When, so when we say live in the now, it doesn't mean stare at one thing and try to keep input from coming in. It means something maybe a little bit more terrifying is that in in that in that ashtray, uh, 
in that son is everything you know and everything that maybe has been known. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I mean, I, I, be here now is salutary advice, but I always want to ask how how big is here and how long is now? And um, it's no, it is, I mean, I said uh, this this information is around us all the time and rightly so. We have to edit it out because we'd be stopped in our tracks, you know, by it, just like Uspensky was stopped in his tracks by by um, um, the ashtray. And there's so many other um, accounts of kind of, well, what you would, what, what actually has a technical term, cosmic consciousness. There's this thinker, uh, Richard Morris Buck from the early 20th century. I write about in a book called Secret History of Consciousness. And um, he has this experience where he suddenly fundamentally knows everything in a moment. It all comes w- rushing over him the same way that it rushed over Uspensky. And William James has a similar experience. And there's many, many other accounts. And what they actually, the content is, is not, it's not visionary. It's not, you know, it's not other worlds. It's knowledge, but it's so much of it at the same time. And it's what you just said. Instead of only being aware of an edited down version of the reality they're encountering, which we have most of the time, and that's how we've been able to get through the day, suddenly they were aware of all the reality that was contained in each, you know, thing they were, they were encountering. And this has this overwhelming, but that's that's the that's the actual real world. The real world is it's it's like it's like David Bohm. It's it's like the implicate order. You know, we're we're aware of little bits of the the implicate order becoming explicate, but that's so the explicate. You know, the stuff that's on the surface that we can see and taste and touch and you know measure, that's connected to this implicate order that goes down deeper, 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 and is connected to everything else. Every, I mean, this sounds banal. This is the thing. That's why, you know, a lot of people get tired of, oh, this mis- oh, everything's everything. But fundamentally, it is. Everything's connected to everything else, you know. And you, you can't, um, you, you can't, only for sort of, how should you say it, kind of um, particular purposes can you separate something from the rest of everything else. But you have to remember that that's, you're creating an artificial situation there. And it's okay to do that, you know. That, that's how we map things out. That's how we measure everything like that. It's a definition um, that, of an abstraction. You take a yeah, ex- ex- exactly. Yeah. And you abstract yeah, yeah. it from from the whole, and you say it's you know, but we forget that we that, that it's still part of the whole. It didn't go anywhere. It's kind of like reminds me of music festivals. It says, I remember seeing a sign that says, you know, there is no away. You know, when it comes to throwing away garbage, there there's no away. There doesn't doesn't go away. There's no away there. And uh, and I think so often we want to push our problems or those pesky thoughts or or whatever to the sidelines but there's nowhere to push them and i think maybe that's what we're dealing with uh and what's coming up right now with you know uh, a lot of the riots and black lives matter is you know is people that have been pushed to the sidelines are now coming up and you know saying hey this is what this is what's going on and it's not just you know, black lives, it's, you know, there's people in South America and there's, you know, workers in the United States that come from Mexico. And, you know, it's, you know, there's so much being, I mean, we're dealing with an apocalypse, so to speak, or apocalyptic times where a veil is being lifted and things that we don't typically think about are coming into our our frame. And uh, I think this is why, uh, you know, uh, if we have leisure, which, you know, we definitely, a lot of us have a lot of leisure now, you know, some of us might think, oh, that's great. And we, we really enjoy our leisure. Uh, but if you have a ton of trauma or a ton of pain and all of a sudden you don't have your, you know, your normal day to day robotic things that you were doing, all of a sudden that that pain and that trauma, I think, begins to surface. And maybe that's 
the mess or the entangled mess we're all experiencing together uh, now. I'm curious to see where it all goes. And it's been so such a pleasure to talk with you today, Gary. And I, I wanted to chime in and, and, and let you chime in and talk about your work. What are you working on now? Uh, and how do people engage with you? Uh, I've read, I also started listening to Secret History of Consciousness and I'm probably going to buy all your books moving forward. So I'm curious if my listeners wanted to engage with your work, uh, how would they do that? And what are you working on? Uh, well, I just um, putting the finishing touches to a book about uh, precognitive dreams, dreams of the future and synchronicities and things like that. And um, uh, a good deal is about my own experience in that uh, in that world, because I've been um, recording my dreams. Oh, God, for the past 40 years off and on. But I have quite a few journals full of um, quite a few precognitive sorts of dreams. And uh, I have a, a blog. It's just my name, GaryLockman.co.uk. And you can leave a message there. I'm on Twitter and Facebook. And um, yeah, you can find me there. And there's lots of videos and interviews uh, online and on, on YouTube and places like that. So um, I'm, I'm not that hard to find. Have you ever done any educational courses like where people could chime in? Have you done anything like that? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I've, taught, I've taught some online courses for the California Institute of Integral Studies. And then I've also done, you know, especially now um, with all the live talks, um, you know, being canceled. So I've, I've done quite a few Zoom things. Uh, no, I'm, I'm open to doing that as well. And um, yeah, I mean, that's um, I, I actually have a couple things coming up in, in the near future. You and I should talk offline about potentially, uh, and, I, and I'd hope my listeners, if you hear this, just message me on, on the Facebook page, Zeitgeist with Zeitgeist, uh, and let me know if uh, that's something that interests you, uh, uh, an inter- like an online course with Gary Lockman going through different works. Uh, I could, you know, I have so many different ideas of where that could go with like Carl Jung and Aleister Crowley and Madame Blavatsky and the caretakers of the cosmos and the imagination and Rudolf Steiner and, you know, Waldorf schools and uh, right and left brain hemisphere. I mean, just so many things we could talk precognitive dreaming, dream work. Uh, it's just uh, you seem to be tapped, like rooted into the direct fountain of like all of my interests. And my imagine my imagination tells me uh, that uh that, that I'm not you're, I'm not alone in, in, in that and that a lot of people that listen to the podcast would also really enjoy that. Well, thank you, Gary. Uh, I look forward to your new book. Any idea when it's coming out, when it'll be released? Uh, I, I've, um, sometime next year. I can't say exactly when, but um, watch this space. Great. All right. Well, thank you very much. All right. Cheers. Thank you so much for listening. And please follow us to hear future episodes where we discuss topics such as alternative states of consciousness achieved through dance, intention, and shamanic practices, sacred economics, dream work, trauma healing, building community, permaculture, healthy and compassionate living and eating practices, somatic and alternative healing modalities, politics, psychology, mythology, and more. Our work is focused on the liberation of spirit, a return to the sacred, which is a constant collective inquiry. We aim both in person and on this podcast to plant and water the seeds of liberation from economic inequality, trauma, systemic conditioning, addiction, loss of soul, loss of meaning, hopelessness, helplessness, isolation, shame, nightmares, guilt, and a return to glimpses of your birthright, of dignity, joy, community, collaboration, equality, and constantly beautifying new world where you are not alone. And always, if you're ever in the Salt Lake City area, come join us for yoga, dance, or in the garden. A community of beautiful souls are here to welcome you. 
We gather in community Wednesday, 6 p.m. till 10 p.m. and Sunday, 11 to 3 p.m. And we have a vegan brunch or vegan dinner after every event. Our gatherings are all ages and are of no religious affiliation. We look forward to seeing you.